Amen. That's right. We are once again in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult. That's right, Bobby. And we're on a brand. There he is, Pastor Tom. Was that a reverse rapture? That's kind of weird. One thing, I'm kind of torn between that response because I want to ask you, how was it? But then I'm going, well, why did you come back? But anyway, that's false teaching. There is no reverse rapture. Praise God, okay? Uh, but uh, we, we just were boasting on you that because you're incessant praying, we finally made it to a new chapter. That's right. Number 10, Bobby, what is it? It's seventh day Adventist. Well, wait a second. I mean, we believe in God rested on the seventh day, sixth day little creation, and, and the advent of Jesus Christ. It's got to be Christian, right? Wrong answer, and that's what we're going to start to see, folks. And this one, I'm telling you, of all the cults, this one, uh, to use the term, is kind of like a little sleeper cult, if you will. This one gets kind of snuck in under the door. People, oh, come on, not those guys. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be dealing with the facts with that. In fact, I even posted, uh, what was it, yesterday on social media, posted an invite for people to come join us for the new study, and it already started. Uh-uh. Well, whatever. Let's just begin the journey, shall we? But let's go ahead. Let's go take a look at the top of the page there. Who are we talking about? Well, first of all, we're talking about cults again. World religions, cults. We're still on that topic. And the occult, right? Now, review. A cult is sometimes difficult to define, and there's many choices of definitions. Now, again, by way of recap, the non-Christian definition of a cult is this. It usually focuses on the sociological, psychological, and behavioral factors. Now, According to these factors, listen, a cult is a religious group that seeks to what? Control. All about control. What did we see the last two versions of a cult, right? With Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, did they seek to control them people? Absolutely. So that's a sign you're a cult. To control its members by either a single individual or an organization. Same thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the same thing uh, is going on there. So again, whose definition? Are, are we making this up? Are we just being mean towards, with all due respect, Seventh-day Adventist teaching? No, we're doing, we haven't got to the Christian version of a cult yet. But even seculars would say, man, you're fitting that line, unfortunately. Right, so they, that's what they do. Now, two, a cult is manipulative and what demands total commitment and loyalty of the followers, right? Because that's what we do. Because every Sunday after I get done preaching, I say, and you have to buy me lunch. No? Yeah, obviously it ain't working. I am joking by your response. And it was 1932 last time. Somebody took me out. But I'm not bitter about it. But let's move on. Right? And that's total commitment, total control. Right? Now, the standard evangelical def- definition, this is what you and I would say, is a cult. It says a Christian cult, add the word pseudo-Christian, fake Christian, false Christian, that's what you're dealing with there, is any group that deviates from biblical Christianity and fundamental doctrines of the faith. Now again, here's your big five guns that we've been dealing with. How do you know somebody's in a cult? How do you know that somebody's teachings are being derived from a cult, etc., etc., etc.? Here it is. Number one, what is it? The source of authority. What does that mean? Anybody, any source, anything, any so-called word, any person, whatever, that goes outside of the Bible, the word of God, period, okay, or says that they're the only ones you can go through to understand the word of God, and that's what Seventh-day Adventists do with L.G. White. She's their prophetess. We'll see that, Lord willing, in a little bit, okay? Then guess what? You're outside the Bible. That's a cult, okay? Number two, the nature of God, including the Trinity, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the nature of man, and here it is, the means of salvation. How in the world do you get to heaven? Man, you can get all kinds of things wrong. I don't know how many times I've warned you guys, stop eating chicken. You keep getting it wrong. But whatever you do, don't get wrong how you get to heaven. And that's what every single religion, every single cult, the occult, that's the whole unifying fact. If anything, what they all have in common, it's the wrong way to heaven. You can't get that one wrong. You don't want to get that wrong. That's why we love them enough to understand where they're coming from and so that we can engage into a conversation with them and hopefully lead them to Jesus Christ. Now, in many cases, these groups, here's where the illusion comes from. Here's where the lines get blurred, if you will. In many cases, these groups may use the same words as us, but what do they do? They don't just redefine them. What's the word there? Radically, right? Redefine them, right? You got to get behind the veneer, right? And again, believe it or not, even a Seventh-day Adventist would say, oh, no, 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 we're just saved by grace. Mm, That's not really what you believe. Okay, with this thing called the investigative judgment, and that they believe it is based on your works. Okay, again, we'll get to that uh, soon enough. Now, remember that all false philosophies, religious, psychological, and Ruth, what's that word? 
Act. He's always there, right? Act. Okay, are Satan's creation. Well, well, what's the basis for that? Because we don't like them. No, Cheryl, you didn't mean that, did you? Of course not. You know better than that. John chapter 8, right? How many times have we seen that? I'm not going to turn there. John chapter 8. Satan is a murderer, and he's been one from the beginning, but he's also a liar and the father of all lies. So what's the Bible? Straight from Jesus. Say anything that's contrary to what Jesus, the Bible, God teaches. Ultimately, we may not have been there when the demon inspired it. Who did it come from? Any lie. Satan. So therefore, any false teaching any cult, any occult, any religion other than true biblical Christianity. Who's behind it? Satan, right? And that's what he says. Any distortion of the true gospel is the work of Satan, whose aim is to deceive people into thinking that they're doing what is needed to be rewarded uh, heaven upon death. That is a salvation by works. In other words, doing good things and not doing bad things. Now, how many people do you know that still have that mindset? I'm not that bad of a person. What did they just say? I think it's by works. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. What did they just say to you? Well, I, you know what? Well, I go to church services. What did they just say? It's by works. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I'm an American. Okay, that's cool. But <laughs> that doesn't save you, right? It's by uh, God's wonderful grace to the cross of Jesus Christ and faith in that, okay? But that's what he does. Anything that says that you have your hand in it is a false gospel. Okay, that came from Satan, because he's the father of all this baloney. Anything to steer people away from the only one way, the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember what the rule was? Anytime anybody, I don't care who they are, I don't care what secret knowledge they have, when they squint one eye when they say it. Okay, I don't care how cool that is, right? What, what do they say? If it's, here's the rule. It's Jesus, period, is how you get to heaven. His work on the cross, that's it, right? Jesus. If anybody says, well, it's Jesus and, oh, no, it's Jesus or, or, no, it's Jesus, but, but that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel, okay? It's Jesus through and through. It's only his work. Now, if one carefully studies the various religions and cults of the world, you're going to discover that, underline these next two words, without exception, right? Without exception. This is the unifying factor of everything else other than biblical Christianity, that they are founded on some form of human works, human effort, and works of righteousness, right? That you got to do something, right, instead of accepting a gift that God has already done it for you. And frankly, only he can do it because your works are what? What's the Bible say? Open your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, filthy rags. We've talked about this. I want to hit it again in this context. So we realize that, folks, this isn't just, well, they think that you got to, you know, Seventh-day Adventists will say you got to only worship on a Saturday. You can't worship on Sunday, right? Or you're toast, right? Or, or no, no, you can't. You got to keep the dietary laws. That's what you got to do. Folks, look, that's all human works. You think that your, your righteousness, your works, your self-effort is going to get you there? Well, let's, let's read. Just, you know, just to kind of whet the appetite, what does God think about that attitude? Excuse me that uh, you think you're going to get there that way, by yourself, right? Isaiah 64, right? Let's take a look at uh, verse 6, right? All of us, how many is that? That's everybody, right? Everybody, all of us have become what? Like one who is unclean and all, how much? All our righteous acts. Yeah, but I know a guy, he's really nice. He'd rip the shirt off your back and uh, actually off of his back, then he'd give it to you. But then if you got an argument, maybe he would rip it off of your back, but I digress. But anyway, so... <laughs> I know God, and he's not, he would never hurt a flea. Well, guess what? You lied, right? right? I'm sure you took something without permission once in a while. Even if it was that pencil in the third grade, it wasn't yours. You're stealing, right? But all of us, all of us are uh, unrighteous acts are what? What's the word there? Like filthy rags. I'll get to that in a second. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our what? Our sins, right? Paul goes on to say, and I don't, I'm not going to repeat that, but if you want a parallel passage, you're dealing with the depravity of man. Romans chapter 3, what's he say? No one. See, he says all of us, all of us. What's Paul say? No one, no one. They're absolute terms. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, no, not one. He says it repeatedly over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible says, are you kidding me? To think that you're actually going to get there, I don't care what you prescribe. I don't care if you think it's, i, I got to worship on this day or refrain from this food. That is an abomination to God. Now, you might think that that's harsh. But what was the words there? Filthy 
rags. Now, let me read to you. We've talked about this before, but let me verbalize to you again. What does that mean in Isaiah? Right? Uh, here's what I mean. The term filthy rags is very strong uh, term, and God's being very graphic because this offends his holiness. The word filthy is the translation of the Hebrew word adah, which means literally the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. And rags means like rag, right? So therefore, these righteous acts, now put, put the list there, take every cult, every religion. No, I know I'm, I'm going to earn my way to heaven by going to church services. That's a filthy menstrual rag you just threw before the holy throne of God. No, no, I'm going I'm to refrain from eating pork. You just threw a bloody, wow, before the holy throne of God. No, I'm going to only worship on a Saturday. You just... Oh, took a box. Are you serious? See, I didn't say that. God did. That's what he's saying, right? And basically, why is he using that picture? Listen, these righteous acts are considered by God as repugnant as a soiled feminine hygiene product thrown before him. Excuse me? You actually have the audacity. My son's blood was shed for you. And you're going to say your own efforts... Which is basically a self-produced thing. It's hard to even say, but I mean, I'm just quoting scripture. Do you see how? Ugh. But do you see how offensive this got? And see, this is why we can't budge, folks. We cannot budge from this. We cannot budge. It's only through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an offense to God. It's an offense to the cross of Christ. And when people come up, and every cult's got their list, and we're going to see some day Adventists, they got their list. Every one of these things, you might as well just supplant it. When you see someone, oh, but you, it's Jesus and you got the pork and, and Jesus, or, or, but only on Sunday. Picture, every time they add, because each one's got their list, they just took a tampon. That should suffice, God. Wow. That's graphic, right? And that's what's going on. Our salvation is not the result of any of our efforts, abilities, intelligent choices, personal characteristics, or acts of service we may perform. Our acts of righteousness do not produce salvation, but they are the evidence of our salvation. You got the cart before the horse, right? Because when you love Jesus, what's the natural response? When all hope is lost, we're doomed to <laughs> deserve to go straight to hell, and yet he saved us 100% completely, past, present, future. As we saw before, he even obliterates our sins. It's just awesome. What's the natural response? I want to serve him. I want to, you know. So don't get the cart before the horse. But that's how egregious that mentality uh, is to God. And that's what these guys, just like Mormonism, just like Jehovah's Witnesses, just like Catholics, all really, they all have their things that they're chucking before God. Don't want to be there. Don't want to be there. Okay? And we are not doing anybody a service if we don't speak up in love. That's how offensive that is to God. Okay? And again, the penalty is if that's what you're trusting, guess what? You're going to hell. So we have to love them enough to tell them the truth, right? Now, let's continue on. Works of righteousness, that's what they all, without exception, agree. Only grace-centered biblical Christianity is from God. Every other form of religion is from who? Satan, inspired by his demon spirits, promoted by his lying agents, and centered in works of righteousness. In fact, the Bible says this kind of stuff is going to increase in the last days. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, right? We've been here many times. And this is very applicable to Seventh-day Adventists, all right? 1 Timothy and uh, 4, 1 and 2. If you find 2 Timothy, what do you do? Yeah, 2 Timothy. Yeah, you almost got it there, Bobby. That's for like the book of Daniel or Matthew, but you got the 2 in front of it. So kind of, all right, there you go. Hey, you got it. All right. Uh, let's take a look there. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that when... In the latter times, last days, if you will, what's going to happen? How are you going to know you're living the last days? Some, the context is in the so-called church, will what? Abandon the faith, and what are they going to do? Well, you got to keep the show going. Well, they're not following God. What are they following? Deceiving spirits and things taught by who? Demons, lies. All lies come from Satan. Now, listen to this. He, he opens it up. Such teachings come through what? hypocritical liars, right? Whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, here's a couple characteristics. They forbid people to marry. Does anybody do that today with their false teaching? Yeah, we saw that with Catholicism. And order them to abstain from certain foods, right? 
Now, I know every time I quote this passage, you start chuckling because you say, well, this is what you're doing. No, I'm not doing that. If you want to eat chicken, go ahead and eat chicken. I'll visit you in the hospital. But anyway, that's right. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying, why would you? Okay, there's a difference. But anyway, uh, but that's what we're going to see with Seventh-day Adventists, right? They got to abstain from certain the dietary laws, all that stuff. And folks, I'm telling you what we're going to, if I can get that far, uh, we're going to see that basically you got Seventh-day Adventists, you got the early charismatic movement, you got Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you've got uh, Mormons, uh, you got uh, uh, with uh, Christian Science there with all that the Church of Christ, which is legalistic as well, uh, and things that all coming out about the same time frame in the last days, right? The, the turn of the previous century in the mid to late 1800s, all of them basically took off, right? At the last great national revival in our country's history, okay? And it's like Satan's last ditch, like oh boy, we're getting close now. And again, every single one of those claims to be Christian. But they're not. They're fake. Every last one of them. Right? So we'll get into that, hopefully, if we get that far. Now, let's continue on. Right? Our heart. What's our heart? Now, and again, we're just recapping. Why are we doing this? Why do we keep going through this? Right? Again, it's not to win a debate. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What do you do with this? Right? We want to reach these people for Christ. Because, again, if they're trusting their own filthy, you need Jesus. And I don't want even my worst enemy to go to hell. Right? So we want to study, we want to learn about you, we want to lead you to Jesus Christ. That's our heart. And that's what he says. Now, when studying the cults, we may be tempted to scoff at the seemingly ludicrous beliefs. Right? And that was tempting, I must admit. Uh, and each one, if you notice, they've got some woo, right? Remember that with Joseph Smith and uh, Brigham Young? They actually still to this day can't get around this one. They believe that people live on the moon and in the sun. I think, okay. And so he's saying, contain yourself. It's going to seem like, wow, that is loot. Woo, right? Okay, and what we just finish up with uh, 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 the same thing with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So the church started with bald-headed men with smoke coming off their brains. I'll refrain. You know, and that's what he's saying, contain yourself. Because guess what? You're going to come wait till you see. <laughs> with Ellen G. White, man, and her so-called visions after she sustained a major mega-head injury, and it's, mm. <sighs> wow. And they have this thing called the Ellen G. White vault. You know why it's a vault? They're hiding it. <laughs> what she really, whoa, but we got access to that vault. But anyway, so, but, but listen, listen, even an atheist knows, listen, when it comes to Seventh-day Adventists, something ain't right. Something ain't right with your belief system. Now, again, this is really an atheist guy who's doing this. So he, this, this, listen to what he says about just core basic beliefs of Seventh-day Adventists. Let's take a look at that. There are some things that make them unique. Saturday is their holy day. Most Christians tend to think of Sunday as kind of the day to rest but Seventh-day Adventists insist that it's Saturday. And screw those heretics who disagree. Remember how God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh? Well, that day was a Saturday. They believe Jesus is coming back soon. Not like in our lifetime soon, but like now soon. The word they use is imminent, and only the people who rest on Saturdays will be saved. They don't believe that you're going to heaven when you die. The only way anyone's going to heaven is after Jesus comes back during his second coming. What happens if you die before that happens? Well, then you, I guess you just have to sit unconscious in your grave until he does return, which I hear should be happening any day now. They believe bad people don't go to hell. Oh no, it's much worse. They're just going to be permanently destroyed. Because God grants us eternal life. So if you don't accept God, you don't get the joy of burning in hell for eternity. Which also means, by the way, that Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in hell. Because no one could actually end up there. They believe God is going to determine your fate through a process known as investigative judgment. Basically, until the time when Jesus comes back, which is any day now, 
God is examining your life to decide what to do with you in the afterlife. It's not enough that you believe in him, you also have to live your life in accordance with his rules. God is always judging you. Seventh-day Adventists are health nuts, which actually doesn't sound like such a bad thing. They abstain from alcohol and tobacco, and coffee and soda, and unclean meats like pork, because they believe those things defile your soul. So not a bad idea, but really weird reasoning. Their prophet was a woman, Ellen G. White. So that's different, and kind of cool in a way. But that's really the only way she's different. She saw visions in 1844, and the religion just kind of sprang from there. These visions came after she suffered a traumatic brain injury as a child, and after she came out of a long coma, which many people believe led to epileptic seizures. But, you know, I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> An atheist. Now, actually, pray for that guy. If he's still alive, looks like a recent video. But even he knows, just the core belief, something's wrong here. Right, this is, and this is, to use the words in the book, this is ludicrous. And it's tempting to not just like, oh, wow. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've noticed uh, on the one thing, they're big on the dietary laws. And what was the one thing he called out that you can't have? Pork. What also rhymes with pork? Bacon. Now, did you know? <laughs> did you know that not only atheists know that something's wrong with this belief system? Even babies know something's wrong with this belief system. Because I got a video not, and I didn't doctor this one up at all, right? This is just fresh bread. This is a baby caught on camera live the first time it ever tasted bacon. Watch this. <laughs> Burger. Bacon. Burger. Bacon. Burger. Burger. All right, let's close in prayer. No. Yeah. But no, that's what they do, okay? Now, again, this is, the, okay, you might seem ludicrous, and it's like, okay, and you really believe that, and you really, woo, you know, you'd be tempted to say, hey, you want to come over to my house for lunch? What are you having? I'm having bacon-wrapped bacon with bacon juice on a bacon salad with bacon ice cream and a bacon pop. You want to join me? <laughs> no, don't do that. Right. I know it's going to be kind of ludicrous, right? And I'm telling you, we are just hitting the tip of the iceberg. We're going to run across some stuff. It's like, are you? Whoa. Okay, but don't do that. Right. Now, we must remember that the average cultist, he says there, that we will encounter is not a false teacher. I got a little caveat here. I'm going to, okay, yeah, they're, maybe not they're the one who's the false teacher, but if they're propagating this, no, you are a false teacher. Okay, so I, I'll veer a little bit off of that statement there. And, uh, but, but in general, I know what he's talking about. But it, they're, they're deceived by Satan, right? And this is the point. There's someone that God loves for whom Christ died. They need to be saved, right? But God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8, his own love towards us, that while we were just perfect, that, no, sinners, Christ died for us, right? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for who? Just only a certain group? No, he loves mankind. He appeared, right? Titus 3, 4. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. And again, Paul's example should be our. This is our attitude. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, the Jewish people, according to the flesh. My brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer is to beat these people in a, in a debate. <laughs> I'm sorry, wrong translation. What did he say? My, my heart's desire, my prayer is, oh, God, that they would be saved. That's to be our heart. Now, now that's to be our heart, now, but be rest assured. Don't wimp out. Don't wimp out. Because I'm telling you on this one, Seventh-day Adventist, you're going to have people fight you on it. You're going to have people fight you on it, and they just don't know. And I'm talking in the church. Because I don't know, you haven't done your homework, I don't know what it is. Right? Some people say, well, I know some seventh, and it's typically respond, and they're really nice. Nice don't get you into heaven. And I'm not saying they might be nice people, 
But if they truly believe that you have to worship only on Sunday to be saved or keep dietary laws to be saved or that God is looking down upon your works to decide whether or not you get into heaven, that's a false gospel. You're not saved. And then because, oh, you're just being there. No, because listen, if you're really trusting in that, nice or not, you're going to hell. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. So yes, we got to have the right heart, but listen, don't shrink back and think you're doing them a favor by saying, oh, listen, let me tell you, can we, exa- can we have a little bit a deeper conversation here? This is a cult, and this is a works-based false gospel. And please don't put your heart and trust in that, okay? So do you see the balance there? All right, so let's begin that journey. It started, believe it or not, before Ellen G. White. Now, she's the big one, and we'll see that they even converge uh, her so-called words into their so-called version of the Bible. They have a Bible called the Clear Word Bible. And with all due respect, the only thing that's clear about it, it ain't from God. Because they intersperse her, and it's, anyway, so that's the problem. Now, let's take a look at the history. Let's begin that journey. Where in the world did all this get started from, right? The Seventh-day Adventists grew out of what was called the Millerite movement in the U.S. in the early 1800s by a guy named, Will. you guys are studious people. Look at that. It's awesome. Millerites. I was wondering, what's that guy's name? No, it's William Miller, right? Now, he converted from deism to Christianity in 1816 and became a Baptist, okay, uh, interesting choice of words. Does that mean he got saved? I don't know. Just because I'm a, I'm a butt. That don't save you. <laughs> anyway, so whatever. I'm not sure about that one. But let me, because you might be asking, well, Pastor Billy, inquiring minds want to know, what's a deist? Well, hey, thanks for asking, Kyle. It works well with my notes. Let me tell you what a deist is. So what was he believing in before he became a, apparently a Baptist? Right? Well, this is it. Deism essentially is the view that God exists, but he's just not even involved with this at all. That's really what it is. Right? He's just out there. It's like they use the analogy. It's like a, a, a clockmaker. He winds up the clock, and there you go. What kind of a god is that? So they say that there is a god, a deist, right? but that he is uninvolved. Uh, and they also says he doesn't interfere with his creation. They deny the Trinity, the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, miracles, any supernatural act of redemption or salvation. And again, God is uncaring and uninvolved. How many guys say that's not a... You're starting to wonder why it's not a very popular view today. (laughs) So he exists, but he's not involved. Now, deism obviously is not biblical because how many times does the Bible say that God is not only in control of creation and responsible for creation, he upholds and sustains creation, but even nations and and people and kings and who's the ones up and down causing them to, who's the one in control? Who's the one involved, right? Even when it comes to judgments, where do you think they're coming from on the planet? The world history and humanity are clay in the hands of God. He forms them, shapes them as he sees fit. And I don't know how you could believe in this without even getting around this. The ultimate act of God, quote, interfering with creation was right there. The cross of Christ. He came into this world, took on flesh, and died for us. How could he say that there's a God, but he's just out there? You know, that's what's called the Bette Midler false theology. How'd that song go? God is out there. I'm sorry, I can't do Bette Midler. But anyway, whatever. Let's just move on. Uh, but anyway, but no, that's that's what he says. That's what he was into, right? And uh, then he became a, a, a quote unquote a Baptist. Now he studied the Bible in order to reconcile apparent biblical difficulties raised by the deists. Now typically those difficulties would be this: Well, God, you know, the reason why we say He's uncaring and He's uninvolved because look at the suffering. If God, you know, it's the same thing today, isn't it? If God's real, we just fin- I just finished preaching that message, right? Where was God in the Las Vegas shooting, right? It's His sovereign. He's still involved, whatever, right? But the deists would say, oh, no. And so he's probably dealing with, my guess is, from the deists, like, if God's real, then why is there evil and suffering the classic thing, right? So, but if anything, so he got him going in that direction. Now, in his studies, he developed a focus on the imminent return of Christ. Now, that's good. That's great. How many times have we seen before? One third of the Bible deals directly or indirectly with Bible prophecy. Old Testament, New Testament, the first coming, the second coming, the rise and fall of nations, the coming of the Messiah the first time and the second time, the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, uh, uh, the, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state, all that stuff's in the Bible. That's good stuff, and you need to know that, and that's good stuff. Right? So, so there's nothing wrong with that. But as we're going to see, who did this guy influence? Remember? Charles Taze Russell. I mean, he was influenced by Seventh-day Adventists, right? And again, but guess what this, they have in common? These guys, too, are date setters. Do we have any date setters going on today? Yeah. Boy, is this applicable or what? 
right? And that's where he got it from. So again, nothing wrong with studying about the imminent return of Christ. Nothing wrong with studying Bible prophecy. But once again, what the common thread is, these guys went over the line and set a date. And then because they're so prideful, arrogant, or what, okay, they wouldn't admit they were wrong. And they kept going. And that's what we're going to see, right? And he began preaching at the age of what? Uh-oh, I don't know if you guys realize this, but just a few weeks ago, I just turned 50. But you don't have to worry. See, I, I didn't start preaching at 50. Uh, I've been preaching for about 20-some years. But anyways, let's move on. All right, now, now, what was the context? Because this answers the question, well, how could this many people? I mean, because this guy's following. There's still a following today. And, and again, off this, you're going to see, you're going to see, here comes the influence to the Jehovah's Witnesses and all their date setting, all that stuff, and the Charismatics and even the Mormons and, and all these other people. And how, how could so many people fall for this? I mean, don't people know that you shouldn't set a date? Isn't that a cardinal rule? It's like, don't deny the virgin birth and don't set a date. Well, why did so many people fall for this baloney? Because it was in the midst of the second great true genuine revival in America's history. And what does the enemy do when God's doing a great work? He's right there to try to mess it up, right? And he does that with false teachings and he seduces people away. Now, that's what, that's what, so America's second great awakening, 1790-1840, was an intense interest in the second coming of Jesus. And again, is that bad? No, that's awesome, right? But again, Satan will twist it and contort it. Now, as a result, the Millerites accepted Miller's idea that Jesus would return, all right? Now, now, if he would have stopped right there, would have been fine. But what's he say? What's it say there? In the year covering the spring 1843 and spring 1844. And, of course, you've got to have your proof text. And he had one, Daniel 8, 14. What's the latest one today? Oh, Revelation 12. I mean, didn't you guys know? Well, that there, no, it has nothing to do with the church. It had nothing to do with the rapture. Said it from the get-go. It's all about Israel, and it's about Jesus, the first coming, and the, the ascension into the right hand of the Father, and then the second half, read it, 1,260 days. is the second half of the seven-year tribulation, which we're not even in. So what are you talking about? Why are you, and it's, it's even, it's talking about Israel. It's not even it's about stars in the sky. What do you, what? But people are doing the same thing today. This guy comes out, he has his verse, and this was his verse. It wasn't Revelation 12, it was Daniel 8. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Well, he interpreted, and get this, this was before calculators. (laughs) He interpreted the 2,300 evenings and mornings to be years and counted for from 457 B.C. when the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem was given, which I don't even think is the right date, when his initial predictions failed. You can put that in all caps if you'd like, right? They failed, right? He said, man, I am so sorry, guys. I violated a basic biblical rule. I set a date. Uh, Would you please forgive me? And I will never do that again uh, as your shepherd. And I'm just sticking to the word of God. I mean, I just, somebody must have gave me chicken. My brain wasn't thinking right. Is that what he said there? Same thing that's going on today, right? What's it say? He, oh, no, Apparently, I need to put batteries in that calculator. Now I'm good. He adjusted his prediction to conclude that, oh, no, no, Jesus would return on 21st of March, 1844. That didn't happen. I'm sorry, guys. Once again, somebody force-fed me chicken when I wasn't looking. I wasn't thinking. Sir. I should have stopped the first time. And, okay, you got me in the second. I quit. I'll never do it. Is that what he did? No, man, is this applicable for today or what? And then later on, no, no, 22nd of October, 1844. And these two what? Fail. Why? Because the scripture says you don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. You don't know. I don't care how nifty you are with math. Of course, he didn't have a calculator. Maybe he had one of those Damascus things, those nifty little bead-looking things. I don't know what he had. But hey, that doesn't help either. <laughs> Nobody knows. Why do we do this, right? And so Miller quit promoting his ideas on Jesus' return, and the Millerites broke up. Now, it could have stopped but it didn't. People, that wasn't enough. We had to keep it going. And that's what we're going to see, not in this day, Lord willing, next time, Joseph Bates, James White, who then married Ellen, who became Ellen G. White, kept the thing going, right? In fact, he even admitted, to his credit, might take him three times in false day setting, but he finally admitted he was wrong. Listen to this. Before his death, 1849, it's reported, he said, quote, we expected the personal coming of Christ at that time and now contend that we were not mistaken or that we were uh, uh, not mistaken, uh, and now to contend that we were not mistaken is what? 
dishonest. So he owned up to it to his credit. We should never be ashamed, frankly, to confess our errors. I have no confidence in any of these new theories that grew out of the movement. Right? So to his credit, at least he admitted. He said three times at least. And he, but, but guess what? The other people took it and ran with it. And this is where they get the false teaching, the investigative judgment, because you can't admit you're wrong. So you got new light. I had a vision. Same old thing that we've been seeing with all the other ones. Same thing. You got out of the scripture. You can't admit you're wrong, just like Jehovah's Witnesses. And you got new information. And you just keep it going. Okay? Now, tell me that's not applicable. What happened to the September 23rd thing? Yeah, it rhymes with nothing. Give it up for Pastor Tom, the anointed man of God. Right? Nothing is the key word there. Uh, Zippo, nada, uh, zilcho. In fact, it was, I thought it was very interesting. Probably one of the most, with all the events before that, there was hurricanes and all kinds of stuff. That day, man, you could have heard a, a, a batch of fleas or something. There was like nothing going on. That was one of the most quietest days. And I was like, that's God's way of saying like, mm-hmm, are you done yet? The problem was, okay, was guess what? What those guys do? September 24th, right? I mean, hard off the heel. They didn't even wait a day. And they predicted another day. Instead of saying, I'm, hey, man, somebody forced to have me chicken. My brain wasn't thinking. I'll stop. I'll never do it again. Same thing here. No. And then September 24th came. What did they do? No, it's September 30th. That's what it is. We were a little bit off because of the moon, the cycle, and thing. Are you serious? September 30th came. And went, what happened? I forced, I'll never go to KFC again. I repent. I saw I'll never chicken's evil. No, they didn't do that either, right? Now the latest thing's October 30th or whatever's latest thing. And now there's another one coming out. And if you look at these guys that are promoting this, uh, after the September uh, 30th thing, they basically were, they were awfully silent there for quite a little while. But now they're back at it again. And what is so heartbreaking, let alone disturbing to me, is if you look at the comments of their followers, we're glad you're back. Back what? Back doing it again. They don't care. They just want to follow these people and all this stuff. And folks, this is exactly where cults get started. And I'll make a prediction. If the Lord should tarry and we're still alive and the rapture doesn't happen tonight, okay, because it is imminent and something to look forward to. But based on these people's behavior, could it be that we are seeing a new cult in our lifetime being born? Because think about it. See, we have history. We got hindsight 2020. We look back, right? And we go, oh, and then he did this, but he meant it wrong. But then, then over time, these people kept it going, the lie, and then it birthed into what we've got to deal with today. Maybe we're living one of those events live. Have you thought of that? Because you look at these people's behavior, and they won't let this thing go. They're setting dates just like Jehovah's Witnesses, just like Seventh-day Adventists. It's going on still today. But let's take a look at this, this thing this, uh, uh, real quick, the Second Great Awakening. What is that? What was this revival? Why did so many people fall for this? What was going on during that time period, right? The Second Great Awakening was during the 19th century in the 1800s, uh, 1800, 1820. And um, this was basically where you have, if you will, the heyday, the birth of Baptists, okay, in our country, and, of course, Methodists before... Uh, unfortunately, in the status that they're in today, but hey, it's not getting any better with the Baptists either, unfortunately. Uh, but back then, it was uh, pretty decent back then. So that's the two kind of groups that it, it uh, uh, really affected. Now, notice it was the, for those who hooked on numbers, second great awakening, right? Well, believe it or not, it's called that because there was a, for you guys are hooked on math, right? There was a first great awakening, and that was basically in the 1730s and 1740s, right? And that was in Protestant Europe and British America, 1730s, 1740s. So that was before Independence Day. And here comes this great revival in our country. Uh, the other one, the second great awakening, that was before the Civil War. So it's almost like big climatic events. God comes in and gets people's hearts right. Maybe because a whole bunch of folks are going to die. I don't know, but whatever. You can talk about that till you're blue in the face. But anyway, so that's the first one, that time frame. And again, uh, during that time in the First Great Awakening, uh, you had a couple of folks uh, who were the bigwigs, the promoters of that, if you will, that God used. One of them was George Whitfield and started actually over in uh, England, over there. And uh, they say that, you know, he was out there preaching to some coal miners. Of course, you know, if you know coal miners, you're covered with black soot. And he talked about the, the white furrows because they would cry. As he'd be preaching about Jesus, they're getting saved, and the tears would cross white furrows. And, and they, that, that was kind of the time frame that credited of, of getting that movement going. Then it kind of over here at the Americas, there was another gentleman involved, Jonathan Edwards, who's considered America's greatest theologian. He was a Puritan. He was a, a Calvinist. And uh, he was uh, preaching uh, at his church in Massachusetts, okay? 
And uh, what he was talking about was how learn to be a better... He wasn't... Who said that? Are you kidding me? He was preaching on hell, man. The famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was preaching hell big time. And I got to thinking, well, gee whiz, maybe that's why revival's not coming, because nobody's preaching on hell anymore, Right? We're so worried about, hey, build up your self-esteem. How to be financially successful. That's right. Learn to be a better you. Except, you know what? If you don't know Christ your Savior, you're going to hell. Right? And this guy, let me just share with you some in that sermon, right? And then pff, revival breaks out. Listen to some of the things that he was sharing in that sermon, right? This is cool. He said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at uh, any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. The only reason why you're still sucking air and you're not in hell right now is only because of the mercy of God, his pleasure. He said, God may cast wicked men into hell at any given moment. The wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. The wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation in hell. Listen to this. The wicked, he said, must not think simply because they're not physically in hell that God is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those miserable creatures that he's now tormenting in hell and who at this very moment do feel the fierceness of his wrath. At any moment God shall permit him, Satan stands ready to fall upon the wicked and seize them as his own. And simply because there is not any visible means of death before them at this given moment, the wicked should not feel secure. All that wicked men may do to try to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Jesus Christ. So he's preaching this, right? And he's, while he's preaching his sermon, he's even getting interrupted because people, oh, they're literally running down the aisle, dropping, what must I do to be saved? Oh. And then it began to spread to the colonies there uh, during that time frame before the American Revolution. Right? So George Whitfield, he's over there in England. right? Uh, Jonathan Edwards is over here. That's the first great revival. And then, of course, George Whitfield comes over here from England, and he starts... Uh, preaching uh, in the colonies as well. So like a two-bang punch, right? And one of his biggest supporters was a guy, George Whitfield, when he came over here, right, is uh, a guy named Benjamin Franklin. And he's the one that started that little nifty little tiny department store. No, that's sort of, they got it from his name. Right? I don't think he started that. But no, he's a, and, but, but Franklin was a, a supporter of Whitfield. Now, Franklin was a deist, believed that there was a God, right? And, uh, but he kind of liked Whitfield, and he was, remained a, a supporter of Whitfield until he died in uh, 1770, right? But it was thanks to Benjamin Franklin and his influence and his ability to mass produce. You know what he used? Media. What a concept. You know, we should do that sometime. You know, use media to get the gospel out, right? And that's what he did because he had printing presses. He had newspapers, manga, you know, whatever of that version. And so he liked the guy. So he didn't necessarily wasn't a Christian at the time, but he liked the guy, what he was doing. And so he printed in mass his sermons and teachings and spread it out. And so that helped to spread the revival using media. Just keeps going back to media. Right, what a concept, right? And uh, so that's what he did. Now, there actually is, I'll just say this, there is a debate whether or not uh, Benjamin Franklin, some would say that before he uh, passed away that there might have been evidence that he did finally, maybe Whitfield's influence finally got to him, uh, got saved, but, but that's a debate. I'm not going to go there. But the Second Great Awakening, uh, uh, again, followed that. So basically, 1700s, early 1700s, mid-1700s, first Great, great Awakening before the uh, uh, American Revolutionary uh, War, and uh, the Revolutionary War. And then you got the next Great Awakening, Millerites, all this stuff going on uh, right prior to the uh, Civil War. Now, again, the big ones were uh, the Methodists and the Baptists. Now, uh, one of the methods they used also, this was another way to disperse, is they had what was called circuit riders. Circuit riders or circuit preachers. And uh, that was basically a low-tech form of Facebook and social media, right, to get the word out. And their low-tech version was uh, the electricity they used was horsepower. One horsepower. Literally one horse. They would ride a horse, <laughs> and they would go on the circuit. But what they would do is these circuit riders, they would go into the highways and the byways, the backwoods of America, and they would preach the gospel and things of that nature. And so, again, that helped to spread, again, and disperse God's word and revival and begin to affect our nation. Again, whatever means you need to share the gospel, you should be doing it, Right? Uh, what a lesson that is, right? And so again, the Baptists and Methodists were the big ones uh, supporting that. Uh, and again, uh, uh, out of this, you have uh, uh, at the same time this great revival's going on during this time frame. 
Here comes the false. Satan's always there to try to mess up the good. I mean, lots of people are getting saved, people are getting right. I remember uh, uh, testimonies reading uh, back with uh, Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards in his town, and literally they would just, businesses would stop, and just for days people would be doing nothing but studying the Bible. I mean, the whole, can you imagine if Las Vegas basically just shut down and everybody's reading the Bible? Th- that really happened. Now, granted, it wasn't on the scale of the population of Vegas, but it was towns, whole communities were getting saved. It was just, wow, the Spirit of God, oh, what a cool time. So that's awesome. That's great things. But guess who's there to mess it up and lead people astray? Satan. Now, and one of the ways he did that is with pseudo-Christian cults. And the Millerites, early former Seventh-day Adventists, who then later uh, influenced uh, the beginnings of the Jehovah's Witnesses, were there, but also a group called the Churches of Christ. Now, this is another one that people will fight you on. And it's like, I'm sorry, you got to do your homework, right? Now, is the Church of Christ uh, a good biblical church? No, it's not, right? Now, first of all, one of the things that they do is, uh, with the Church of Christ is they, uh, they don't allow musical instruments in their services. You can't have music services. I'm going like, where in the world do you get that? Real quick, open your Bibles to Psalm 150. It's the final psalm. Oh, by the way, in the Hebrew, what's the word, what's psalm mean? Uh, psalm, music, praise, <laughs> okay. But Psalm 150, let's take a look there. And um, just the very last one. So you tell me if it's acceptable or not to use instruments in our praising and worshiping of God, right? Psalm 150, it's on page 561 in my Bible, if that helps. What does it say? Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in uh, His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His uh, surpassing greatness. And praise Him only with your lips. And whatever you do, you better not bust out an instrument. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong translation. What's he saying here? This is just one psalm. Sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and the flute. Praise Him with the clash of the cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So how in the world could you say <laughs> that uh, you can't use, inst- it's just, it's wild. Again, why? Because you're going outside the scripture, right? Now, even this guy, I'm going to share with you, okay, uh, uh, this guy, and uh, even he knows, again, this is ludicrous, something's wrong with this. Here's what he shares. I uh, used to be a praise and worship leader for many different religious groups before I became a Christian. <laughs> I... Uh... Thank you for laughing. You're so tolerant. <laughs> I used to lead praise and worship at a Jehovah's Witness church one time. Sing songs like, Someone's knocking at your door. Somebody's ringing your bell. And let me in. <laughs> Then I was uh, at a Mormon church for a while. We used to sing songs like, I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride it away I like. Became a believer. Then I led worship at a Church of Christ. You can laugh. Go ahead. They laugh. They love that joke. <laughs> Again, we're tempted to say, man, that's ludicrous. But it is kind of like, what are you talking about? Okay. Uh, but anyway, that's one of the things that came. And again, this is coming out at the same time from God's doing a great revival. These folks are popping out on the scene. So that, that's one thing. Now, again, hey, we, oh, if you don't want to use instruments, you don't have to. Nobody's saying you have to. But here's the problem. Listen, the problem is that with some within the Church of Christ, they are fanatically against instruments to the point of declaring that any church that uses musical instruments is not true, biblical, or a godly church. Now you went over the line. Such dogmatism is the mark of a cult. That's just one. Number two, uh, in the Church of Christ, they claim to be the, quote, one true church, outside of which there is no true salvation. Same thing that Mormons do, same thing Jehovah's Witnesses do, same thing that Catholics do. This is completely unbiblical. There is not one church or denomination that encompasses the entire body of Christ. The one true church of Christ is composed of who? Anyone and everyone. 
right? Outside of whatever. If you truly come to Jesus Christ by faith, receive God's gracious goodness, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you're a Christian. The church is not a building. The church is not a denomination. The church is ecclesia. It's a group of called out ones who've been called out of this world, right? And we're new creatures uh, in Jesus Christ, right? Now, the third thing, and this is important, is their issue of baptism. And they believe that baptism is necessary to be saved. Well, guess what? That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. That's a works-based salvation. You took something that was symbolic, just like communion, and you said, I have to do this work in order to be saved. That's not the gospel, which means that's not Christianity, which means you could say it to your blue in the face, you're not a Christian. What you're believing in is not evangelical, biblical Christianity, right? And that's exactly uh, what they say. They say there is, uh, uh, the, that baptism is required for salvation, okay? Uh, but there's no denying it's important, it's symbolic, just like communion, but it doesn't save you. And the scripture uh, is replete uh, about that. But again, that's something uh, that is uh, consistent with a cult. The church of Christ teaches that baptism is a work that God requires before he grants salvation. What if you got saved and then you got in a car wreck? You didn't make it to the baptism. Come on. Hello, thief on the cross. Right? Why did Paul make statements like, God didn't send me primarily to baptize, but to preach the gospel? If baptism was needed for the gospel, why did he ever make a statement like that? It would be ludicrous. Right? And again, that is what? That's the mark of a cult. Titus 3.5 declares, he God saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy through the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in this great awakening that was going on, this is the second one. People are getting saved. Baptist, Methodist at that time, they're using media and all the stuff. They're doing the circuit preaching. They're getting the word of God. I mean, tons of people getting saved. Our country is literally historically effective. It's great. And all of a sudden... Out of the midst of it comes a bunch of false Christians, fake Christians, right? And Seventh-day Adventists are one. So again, because of some of the kickback I'm already getting from just even promoting this study, again, I want other people to admit I'm not the only one that's doing this, right? And uh, other people are saying, listen, they are a cult, and it's not biblical Christianity. And we're going to close out uh, on this if I can get it set up here. How should we as believers view that denomination? Well, even the word denomination is one that raises questions mm. in the minds of some evangelicals. Should Seventh-day Adventism be considered an, a, a denomination? Historically, it's been regarded as a cult, mm -hmm. though there are some in uh, more recent decades who want to have more of an open attitude towards Adventists. I'm talking about an evangelical perspective. So, so the question is one that has been raised because of Ben Carson's involvement in the Republican primaries. Mm -hmm. Historically, the Adventist movement actually started in the early 19th century, in the 1800s. There was a man named William Miller. William Miller believed through his study of scripture that he had figured out when Jesus was going to come back. Mm -hmm. He said Jesus was going to return sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Uh, the Lord Jesus did not return. And so he adjusted his date and said, no, it's going to be October 22nd, 1844. His followers were known as the Millerites. And when Jesus didn't come back on that date, they experienced what they call the great disappointment. Mm -hmm. And obviously Miller's calculations, his predictions did not come true. Most people realized that his calculations had been wrong, but there was a small group who said, wait a second, maybe his calculations aren't wrong. Maybe it's just the event he associated with his calculations that is wrong. The early Seventh-day Adventists came up with the doctrine of what they call Christ's heavenly work of atonement. Mm -hmm. What they say is that on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus went from the, the holy place in the heavenly sanctuary into the holy of holies to continue a second work of atonement in heaven, something they call a work of investigative judgment. Mm -hmm. So that's how the whole movement got started. And uh, a young woman named Ellen Harmon, later married Ellen G. White is her married name. She began to receive visions through these visions that she received, supposedly. 
Uh, she gave really the, the basis to the Seventh-day Adventist movement. So let's talk about uh, the Sabbath, because obviously they meet on Saturday, but they have a wrong view of what the Sabbath is, biblically speaking. Well, yeah, I would say that there's really three big problems with Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, three major reasons why evangelicals should be very concerned and why they shouldn't just embrace Adventism as a denomination. It's, it's not a denomination. It's something that really is outside of evangelical, biblical Christianity. Three reasons why. Number one would be that they do have, in spite of some of the statements that they make about salvation being by grace, they really do have a legalistic understanding of the gospel. And that's seen in their insistence that Christians observe the Sabbath and that Christians observe certain dietary laws out of Leviticus 11 and so on. The Apostle Paul addresses those issues in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, makes it very clear that as Christians, as those who are no longer bound by the old covenant because we are under the new covenant in Christ, that we're not bound to observe the Sabbath or observe dietary laws. The rest of the New Testament uh, really underscores the fact that believers met on the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection. So that's one big concern, is this legalistic understanding of what's required for Christians, the Sabbath, dietary laws, etc. Second big concern is this work of heavenly atonement. We know from the book of Hebrews that Christ's work of atonement was once for all on the cross. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 10, after he completed that once for all sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Nothing in the New Testament indicates that he's performing a second work of atonement in heaven. So this idea of adding to Christ's work of atonement, it's really problematic. And, and even the investigative judgment side of it, Christ is looking at people's works to see who's worthy to enter heaven. That again is a works-based legalistic understanding of salvation. I think it's a big problem. And then the third major area of concern would be with regard to the way Ellen G. White is treated. They elevate Ellen G. White as an authoritative prophetess. Mm -hmm. And anytime you have a movement that elevates anyone or anything to a level of equal authority and in reality greater authority than scripture because they say that scripture has to be interpreted through the lens of Ellen G. White, I think you are setting yourself up for major, major problems. All because you violated scripture, you set a date. Then, because you didn't want to admit it was wrong, even though the guy who originally started it, after three times, at least he admitted it. But you didn't want to admit it. And so in order to keep it going, you had a vision. And you come up with false teaching, and this is at the root of the Seventh-day Adventist. And we're going to take a look at Lord Willen uh, next time at the people who kept it going, unfortunately. Uh, Joseph Bates, James White, who married Ellen, who became Ellen why, you guys are on the ball. This is great. I think you got five for five tonight. And, uh, but we'll take a look at that next time. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. 
Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay, the Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how... Uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word. Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, and folks, let's be honest, we've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you, that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way. That people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. 
He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.